0: Welcome to our latest episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helbarg, and my co host is Vicki Nichols Goldstein.
1: Welcome from Boulder, Colorado.
0: Today, we're honored to be talking with Jared Huffman, Democratic congressman representing California's 2nd Congressional District that stretches along what I call the Redwood Coast from the Golden Gate to the Oregon border, some 350 miles north. An all American volleyball player in college, he went on to work as an attorney for the Natural Resources Defense Council. In the California State House for six years and then was elected to Congress in 2012. Among his many recognitions, he's a climate notion champion, recently led and is now the ranking member of the House Resources Subcommittee on Water, Wildlife, and Fisheries. And among the bills he sponsored to help pass are ones to ban shark fin sales, protect salmon, and help the communities respond to the collapse of Northern California's kelp forest that are essential to Northern California's economy and ecology. But before he had into all of that, you were raised in the Midwest. When did you first connect with the ocean?
2: Well, thank you David and Vicky for having me. Uh and you know, oddly, I was this landlocked Midwesterner growing up, but I was fascinated with whales and dolphins. I remember one summer as a very young kid going to an amusement park and you know, today I look at marine mammal captivity very differently. Uh, but at the time, I was mesmerized by uh, the dolphins, and one of the trainers uh, allowed me to stay after the show and pet the dolphin, and uh, I was hooked. I learned everything I could about uh, the genus and species of every whale I could. I was reading books about the ocean, and I think that probably was a big reason why I decided to go to college at UC Santa Barbara. So uh, a famous
0: surfing school, and you played volleyball, but also, a Smart guy and graduated, uh, Kuma laude. How'd you wander your way up into the Northern California uh,
2: coast? Yeah, so after uh, I, I stopped having a great time playing volleyball and uh, went to law school in, in Boston College, where I uh, was able to work on some ocean issues involving right whale protection during law school. Uh, I took a job with a firm in San Francisco pretty quickly, found myself spending my time across the bridge in Marin, and I have been a North Coaster ever since, uh, over 30 years ago.
0: So, and you really, in your career, made the connection between all waters. You worked on on river issues, on uh, water distribution in California. You were working with the NRDC, and then what decided you to get into electoral politics?
2: So my work as an attorney at NRDC involving some some big water and, and salmon issues in the Central Valley uh, really took me pretty deep into the public policy realm found myself working with uh, folks in Sacramento and in Congress on some of the uh, some of the policies we thought we needed uh, and there happened to open up uh, an assembly seat in Marin and Sonoma County so uh, I ran. Very much in the the lane of the environmental candidate, I all of my materials talked about trying to be the first professional environmentalist elected to the legislature, and that was a year you may remember when Al Gore came out with his Inconvenient Truth film. It was a moment where um, I, I think the public, you know, really locked in uh, on uh, the, the climate issue. Uh, now we call it a crisis, rightly. So, but it was a call to action, that film and and some of the other advocacy that was going on in that moment. And my candidacy sort of happened onto that uh, moment in a a very fortuitous way. I was an underdog, wasn't supposed to win, and here I am.
0: And you've done a lot of amazing work around ocean climate as well as support for uh, rural economies in, in your district. Before we get into policy though, it's just a question of stamina. I want to ask people don't quite get what a Congress person like you does, which is, you spend four or five days a week in Washington, DC, you then fly cross-country, cross country across the whole continent. And then you have to get around your district that stretches from the Golden Gate for 100 350 miles north and, and out to the Trinity uh, Alps. How do you just do it from a logistical and family point of view?
2: Well, you're catching me at a great time to answer that question, David, because uh, I arrived late last night on that long six-hour flight back from Washington, DC. I'm coming to you from uh, my home office at 8 a.m. the day after. And uh, as soon as we are done, it's wheels up to the Sonoma Coast where I have a a meeting that I'm very excited about uh, to discuss the opportunity to reintroduce sea otters to the North Coast. So a subject that may be of some interest to you and your listeners, it just goes and goes. Uh, There's never (laughs) a slow moment. And while I'm doing all of this, of course, I'm trying to track fast moving, high stakes developments back in Washington about whether our Republican colleagues will crash the global economy and cause us to default on our debt. Um, So there's a lot going on. I like to say that I, I juggle chainsaws and kittens pretty much all the time.
0: But you're in a crisis, literally, uh, since 2014, 95% of the kelp forest north of the Golden Gate has gone away because of impacts from climate change. And for communities like Fort Bragg, California, that means the urchin fishery, the, the tourism related to abalone diving, there's a crisis. So you've passed legislation. What are you doing to address this and other coastal climate crisis your district faces?
2: Yeah. uh, Well, thanks for your piece. Of course, we need to raise awareness on uh, just how important these kelp forests are and just how central they are to the entire coastal ecosystem up here. For my part, I have been trying to push as much funding as I can into the efforts of the the Greater Farallons uh, National Marine Sanctuary um, and its support group that are doing some work to try to restore kelp forests and there actually are some interventions that we've found that can work to bring kelp back. Also though to get ahead of the science because you know this whole kelp die-off came to us because of changing ocean conditions that caught us off guard and climate change is going to throw curveballs like that at us all the time. So it's super important that we have the scientific capacity uh, to identify these threats and develop the interventions that are going to be necessary to keep our coastal ecosystems healthy and resilient in the face of these changing ocean conditions and I've uh, I've been able to do that through appropriations and and the directing of funding to agencies and and friend groups like the the Greater Fairlands group uh, but also I've got a piece of legislation actually several pieces of legislation that would be helpful in that regard too
1: So we're really happy that you are such a climate activist. You really understand the complexities of ocean protection, restoration of kelp, et cetera. How do you navigate this in such a polarized environment back in D.C., really focusing in on the environment, the ocean, the climate? What are some of your tactics, your skills to actually move your legislation forward?
2: Yeah, so this area of coastal resiliency, you know, it's not easy. Because this is a super divided Congress and people mainly want to fight about things. But you can find uh, colleagues across the aisle who understand the importance of habitat to fisheries, who understand the importance of sustainability uh, so that people can catch fish uh, for future generations. And uh, you, you try to build some common cause with them around that. And sometimes it includes trying to understand the coastal issues that they're dealing with in their district. So, uh, you know, I can't pretend that I've, you know reached a perfect kumbaya with my Republican coastal colleagues uh, but we have found issues here and there that we can work on together. And uh, that's about as as good as you can do in this Congress.
0: And one of the big events that's happening in your district I'll be reporting on this summer is the largest dam removal in U.S. history, with the uh, the tribes on the Klamath River and the commercial fishermen and the upstream farmers having come together, and and uh, what's been the role of the federal government and and your work on that?
2: Yeah, so thank you. This, this is the largest dam removal and river restoration in American history for significant uh, but obsolete hydropower dams on the Klamath River and um, for. Over a decade, we've been talking about them coming out as some aspiration, uh, some ideal out there in the future. Uh, It's happening. Uh, As we speak, they are moving dirt. They are taking the first of these dams out, the Iron Gate Dam, and uh, the rest are going to come out over the course of the next year or so. Um, So the the federal government has basically, it it has not played a lead role. Uh, The impetus for this project came because of uh, a very contentious FERC proceeding where the owner of these dams, Pacific Corps, which is Warren Buffett's uh, group, Berkshire Hathaway, and uh, they faced a regulatory gauntlet to get a new 40 year hydropower license from FERC because they were going to have to put in fish passage and all kinds of improvements. These dams have just wreaked havoc on water quality uh, in addition to blocking fish passage and they have been terrible for salmon uh, and other fish downstream. Looking at the the prohibitive cost that they were gonna have to to navigate to keep operating these dams for the next 40 years, they made a business decision. Uh, They decided it was better to go get the pretty modest amount of power that these dams generate from cheaper and uh, more feasible sources and take these dams out in partnership with the states of California, the state of Oregon, and the folks that I represent downstream—the uh, commercial fishermen, recreational fishermen, and a couple of Native American tribes, the uh, the Yurok and the Karuk—that have been pushing this for decades. Uh, so that's really how it came about. The federal government has largely stayed out of the way, which is, you know, what I've been working hard to <laughs> to try to achieve—to keep keep them from messing it up. So Klamath was the second biggest salmon producing engine uh, in California next to the Sacramento San Joaquin River system uh, historically. And uh, it has just been dying on the vine uh, because of the parasites and terrible water quality created by uh, these dams. So dam removal will be part of our challenge, but it's not the only thing we're going to have to do. We've, we've got a river that, um, you know, has been Resh- reshaped behind these dams. And so you it's a lot more complicated than just taking out concrete. Um, you're gonna have to flush massive amount and remove massive amounts of sediment. You're gonna have to redevelop riparian ecosystems in the footprint of these lakes. And then um, the habitat upstream uh, is gonna have to be ready for salmon to arrive. Uh, and so there's a lot of work going into all of those areas as well. Uh, but there is no doubt that in the years ahead and and it will take a few years to see, you know, the incredible transformative improvements from this project. But in the years ahead, this is going to be a big shot in the arm for bringing back huge salmon runs on the Klamath.
0: You've also you're talking about bringing back sea otters, which is interesting. We've yeah. got you've got the whale, whales, the seals, the sea lions that are common up there. They haven't been around for a long time. of recreating a natural world and also adapting to a increasingly unnatural one i i spoke with kim brugel who's the mayor of eureka Caltrans is talking about moving 101 inland as sea level rise threatens the coastal highways and 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 what do you see in terms of infrastructure changes and and what the role of the federal government in helping adapt to a a sea level rise and coastal uh, issues and other climate issues like wildfire
2: Yeah. So I think you just tagged a couple of the important challenges we've got to face and not like someday, like right now, because the impacts of sea level rise uh, and and these curveballs that changing ocean conditions are throwing are are here and now. So uh, on on the infrastructure side, absolutely, Caltrans is going to have to tackle the fact that as you take Highway 101 into Eureka, you are at maybe even in some places below sea level. And that's completely unsustainable in that area. So the easy part is recognizing the problem. The hard part is figuring out what do you do with something like Highway 101? And I don't know what the new alignment would be or whether they have to put in a causeway of some kind to simply lift it up out of uh, this area that wants to be a wetland and an estuary and should be a wetland and an estuary. But they're going to have to do either of those two things or maybe some combination. It's going to be costly. That's why it's really important that they start planning for it and, you know, probably doing it in phases uh, as soon as possible. But that's by no means the only place where that's going to have to happen. I mean, I've got Highway 37 in my district, the exact same issue. Uh, You've got other parts of Highway 101. Uh, up and down the North Coast uh, where you you face the exact same challenge. So we'll be dealing with that for a long time to come. But the other uh, maybe more uh, exciting intervention for for your listeners is the opportunity to restore a keystone species to the ecosystem in a way that helps heal it and make it more resilient. And this is where we're going to be challenged to educate people. So you mentioned that you got some blowback from fishermen in, in the Fort Bragg area, perhaps, about the idea of restoring sea otters. Well, those same fishermen are not catching many rockfish when the kelp forests are gone because purple urchins have taken over everything because our starfish all died because of a disease that was brought by changing ocean conditions. And so that's a lot of factors uh, to understand, but that is our challenge to help explain that you know this initial impulse that they might have to say sea otters like to eat fish that's a threat to me uh, to help them understand that the sea otter could very well be the salvation for their ability to keep catching fish in the years ahead uh, if we can repair and rebuild a, a healthy ecosystem
1: so how do you how do you stay informed we're talking sea level rise we're talking climate we're talking transportation infrastructure ecology how do you stay informed about all of these emerging issues and developments and then how do you how do you go about your own process of making the right decisions because you are representing so many different constituents
2: yeah well it's a constant challenge Vicki and uh, I, I appreciate having uh, folks that I can turn to as resources like like, like you folks uh, that know your stuff and are in touch regularly with ideas and concerns I have a great staff. Uh, including, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have a Sea Grant Fellow uh, that has brought a lot of science capacity on ocean and and marine ecosystem issues. Every year I get a Sea Grant Fellow, which is kind of cool. It's very competitive, uh, you know, for members of the Natural Resources Committee and other members of Congress, because there's only a handful of these fellows uh, every year. But uh, our office has sort of become one of the go-to places for these smart young people that want to spend a year working in Congress, and they help uh, my other policy staff, uh, which is just constantly working to help me know as much as I can and make good decisions
0: so and and you're forward looking too. you're You're looking at new potential industries. You've introduced a bill to look at uh, seaweed farming off the coast. And of course, Humboldt will be one of the areas they're looking for floating offshore wind. What do you see as, as future economic opportunities linked to this?
2: Those are two pretty good ones. Uh, you know, one of them might be uh, more of a, a niche economic opportunity. I don't think seaweed farming is going to be like a, a Fortune 500 enterprise anytime soon. <laughs> but it's it's a pretty cool thing. Uh, the more I learn about it, it's something that can happen very sustainably. It's something that uh, a lot of indigenous Communities uh, really want to embrace, and so we've got a, a piece of legislation to try to explore. You know how we can try to stand up a sustainable coastal seaweed farming industry all up and down the West Coast. This is something that they want to do from Juneau, Alaska, you know, down to my district and even further south. And you know the benefits of that go beyond just uh, something that can be a sustainable part of the blue economy. Uh, this is something that can be a nutritious part of our food system. This is something that we can mix into cattle feed to help reduce methane emissions from agriculture. So um, there's just a whole bunch of co-benefits uh, to doing this, even though you know it'll never be uh, the next Fortune 500 company. Now, offshore wind is a different story. That is huge economically. Uh, that is a game changer. It is the biggest thing to come along economically for the North Coast, you know, since the heyday of something that was very unsustainable, which is the, the massive clear-cutting of our forests that got us into all kinds of trouble uh, with with our environmental laws. Uh, but this is something that can continue sustainably. The number of jobs is just incredibly exciting. Uh, the way we are approaching it off the Humboldt Coast, uh, Humboldt Coast I, I don't want to suggests that it's easy because we've got to iron out some friction between uh, these projects and the the commercial fishing industry and and other parts of our community but we are approaching it in a very clear-eyed way in an inclusive way where everybody's at the table trying to go forward together uh, because I think even the fishing industry which uh you know some parts of which are threatened by offshore wind let's let's face it uh, but they understand there may be some opportunity in this for them as well. Uh, there are some revenues that could develop facilities uh, in our working waterfronts uh, that could be hugely beneficial to them. Uh, and honestly, you know, if we if we, I think, look smartly at these areas, even if offshore wind facilities require some limitations on some types of fishing and some types of gear in in some of these areas, Those can function a little bit like marine protected areas, uh, and they can create a little more abundance that spills over into the areas that our fishermen do continue to work. Um, And so we need to explore that side of it as well. But uh, look, we got to do this to save the planet, right? If we don't start getting our energy from things like this, we're going to continue to pollute by burning fossil fuel and killing the planet, and nobody's going to have fish. Uh, nobody's going to even have a planet they can live on. So we got to find a way forward. So
1: in your view, what are the biggest challenges that's really currently facing the entire
2: nation? I would say the two biggest, and we have a lot of challenges, but the two biggest would be, number one, uh, decarbonization, and probably number two, defending our democracy. And, you know, the various uh, permutations of that, from voting rights to the rule of law, Uh, to the anti-democratic, just anachronisms that are built into our constitution that challenge us in those regards. But that's that's a little off topic for for this podcast, but I worry about those things too. And they're all linked. I'm curious because
0: I think you may be part of the answer and that your district represents everything from Marin County, including some of the wealthiest zip codes in the United States to rural parts of Del Norte and Trinity that are very rural and conservative, low-income. What is it that uh, gets everybody supporting you across those different ranges?
2: Well, not everybody does support me, David. Uh, <laughs> I am really incredibly honored and humbled every time I get reelected with big numbers. I think I, I tend to get a little north of 75% of the vote, which feels great. Uh, but, you know, you could flip that around and say, Cash, what did I do to make one out of every four people hate my guts? Uh, so <laughs> I just keep working at it. I try to show up. I try to be uh, all over my district and do a lot of listening. And, um, you know, this this political context that we're all working in is awful. It's divisive. It, it tries to hardwire all of us to to fight with each other and hate each other. Uh, and I just try to bring, uh, you know, a little bit of a calmer tone. Uh, to political discourse wherever I go. So, so far, it seems to be working.
0: Again, you're you're so busy and uh, you've got so much territory to cover. When and what do you and your family do to actually uh, enjoy the ocean and get some time off?
2: Yeah, I don't have a lot of time off, uh, but some of the things that we do, I, I am fortunate to live about 25 minutes away from the Point Reyes National Seashore and all sorts of other amazing spots on on the coast Uh, and we go there all the time i mean it is like a go-to getaway Uh, if if we find uh, an opening on a weekend we will go for the go for a hike or just go to the beach uh, or do whatever we want to do picnic or something else on the coast it's one of my favorite favorite things to do
1: I wanted to ask you just a question about kind of balancing your interests. You mentioned some people love you, some people hate you. You really have the big picture, let's save the planet. Can you describe a time where you had to really make a difficult decision that had to balance the competing interests and and how did you approach the situation?
2: Yeah, uh, it's it's a good question for anybody in this position because you're presented with you know those difficult considerations all the time, I, I had to do it in the last Congress when we had very difficult negotiations over a, a bill we called the Build Back Better Act, which was a big climate bill, uh, but also more than that, it included all kinds of things on the uh, economic fairness and social services, and you know everything from housing to childcare. We were trying to do really big things in the Build Back Better Act, and I was a huge supporter of it, I had contributed to a lot of the environmental and climate provisions in it. And uh, you know we had a difficult decision to make uh, as we thought about advancing that bill because it uh, we had tried to pair it with an infrastructure bill that included other things that I really cared about and worked on, but some bad stuff that Senator Manchin had put in there for the fossil fuel industry. Uh, things like uh, something that actually became law, this, this absurd and ignorant requirement that in order to develop offshore wind or solar on our public lands, you have to pair an almost equal amount of acreage with fossil fuel development and you know, open up vast new tracts of uh, the outer continental shelf or our public lands to fossil fuel development in order to have more renewables. That's that's an insane parity doctrine, if you will. Uh, and I accepted it simply because uh, I needed to st- take that big step forward on wind and solar and climate, and I understood that I was going to have to circle back and try to kill those bad provisions in other ways. Uh, so y- you're just constantly presented with Hobson's choices, if that's the, the the word, and you you try to make sure that what you ultimately accept is something you can live with, but. Um, we, we live to fight another day on the parts that we don't like. And I'm not yet old enough that, you know, I can, I can contemplate being around maybe longer than Joe Manchin. And, and I uh, hopefully will have the last say on some of these things.
0: How much influence do you feel from citizen movements from uh, sort of bottom up efforts to get change? And how does that impact legislation or your ability to legislate?
2: Yeah, it's huge. Uh, it's it's super important. Uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln said public opinion is everything. Uh, you know, with it, you can do anything without it. It's hard to do anything. And we see these movements of young people on issues like gun violence reform and uh, climate action and just being done with these stupid culture wars. Uh, young people are organizing and finding their voice in ways that are absolutely critical to moving the needle in politics. And it's starting to really be a force. So um, that to me is exciting. And in the climate space, I think it comes just in time. These are folks who approach these issues with such a personal stake. And it's always amazing to me when you've got a group full of young climate activists uh, who are genuinely worried about whether they should even think about bringing kids into the world, whether they're going to have a planet they can live on. And you have crusty old politicians that think they're too edgy and they won't let them into their office. I approach it just the opposite. My door is wide open for them. I, I regard them as the best allies I've got on these issues that I've been in the trenches fighting on. I think they're like the cavalry coming to save the day so i'm a big fan uh, of getting this younger generation plugged in as as quickly as we can because they're going to they're going to help us save it all
1: absolutely and i've got two kids in their early 20s and uh, they definitely are very opinionated and want to see a change in our world yeah. um, with that i just want to thank you so much it's been a delight hearing your insight and your ability to really cover so many issues And we love that you're keeping the environment, the climate, the ocean forefront in your efforts. So thank you so much for being part of the Rising Tide Ocean Podcast.
2: Thank you both. Good to be with you.
1: Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
2: Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free. The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tier,
0: tier. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier.
1: Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky.
2: There you are, good boy, Sparky.